Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. Okay, so it's been a year since we recorded that one episode. You remember the episode, coronavirus, should we be afraid? And I guess the answer was, yeah, kind of, sort of, we should have, or we still are afraid, or many people are afraid, or many people have become afraid, however you want to phrase it. But here we are in 2021, one year later, and boy, were we way off with that episode. But today, Jason Tetro, the germ guy, is back. And we're going to recap that episode, as well as looking at super gonorrhea. And did coronavirus or COVID-19 cause super gonorrhea? What? You can get an STI, a sexually transmitted infection, from coronavirus? No, no, no. You can't. You can't. Anyway, this is going to be a super fun episode that you won't want to miss. So stay tuned. Sequels. Some of them are good. Most of them are bad. But on the Sequels Revenge podcast, we're here to celebrate all things sequels. Host John Coulomb and Bill Posley bring on a guest to talk about their favorite movies, and then we pitch a sequel to it. It's a sequel that nobody asked for, but one that we'd like to see. Then we go away write the first five pages to the sequel, bring in a table of actors to read it. So if any of this sounds appealing to you, you should download Sequels Revenge podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play stores. Here we are again. It's been a year, Jason. Crazy, crazy, crazy year, right? Oh, yeah. It has been an insane year. And I mean... Who would have ever thought that this was going to happen uh, when we first heard about this atypical pneumonia coming out of uh, a, a market? Wuhan. Yes, a market in the middle of Wuhan. <laughs> a market and bats. Oh, and and the thing, yeah. Well, bats was one aspect. There, there were pangolins. There might have been snakes. I mean, there was so many opportunities for it to have come into humans, apparently. But again, you know, at one point we thought it was SARS-like. At another point, we kind of figured, oh, it's like the avian flu. It's just going to be isolated. It's not really going to go anywhere. And then all of a sudden, someone came up with the idea that, you know what? I think this might actually be transmissible. And they came up with that three days too late. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I know. And we were talking about it. We're like, oh, it's probably going to be another SARS scare or mm-hmm. another like swine flu thing. No big yep. deal. You know, it might just affect people that have diabetes or people that have chronic lung problems or people with jacked up beta cells. Right. Mm-hmm. And the and funny thing. It- And the funny thing, or perhaps not so funny, and and maybe it's a bit depressing, is that the reason it turned into what it did was not because it was highly deadly and and highly lethal. It was the fact that it wasn't lethal enough. 
And what do that, you mean it wasn't me, lethal enough? Well, with SARS, the original, it was essentially killing about 10% of the people who um, were positive for this particular virus. It got into you and very, very quickly knocked you down so you didn't want to go anywhere. And then after seven to 10 days, it would actually put you in a situation where you were at, at risk of, of having acute respiratory syndrome. Um, and, and as a result of that, you really weren't able to spread it to any great lengths. Um, here, people were having what you could essentially call from that point, walking SARS. And so what that ended up doing was it allowed the virus to spread across the world while still having a rather significant lethality of about 1%. It wasn't high enough that it could literally just encompass one small area of the world and, and essentially be located or limited to that environment. And, you know, when you saw what happened with SARS back in 2003, and again, another highly lethal virus, Ebola in 2013, 14, 15, you actually saw that, okay, it really is spreading within a small community, but it wasn't going out of that community. Um, this was it got unique. contained. It yeah. was mostly contained in Texas, right? Exactly. And so what we saw with this SARS-CoV-2 was completely unique. And, you know, what, what's happened over the last year has been an experiment to, to some extent of what it must be like when you're dealing with something that isn't highly lethal, isn't particularly benign, but fits somewhere in the middle. And to be honest, we, we haven't really done such a good job. No. And you would think with all these scientists, medical doctors around the world, all these investigators, that mm -hmm. we would have done a better job. I mean, even where it first, so it first hit in Wuhan, and then we saw it going crazy in Italy, right? And I mm -hmm. had brought on yeah. one of my cousins who uh, lives in Milan. And I asked him, I go, I see people on ventilators and they're saying there's not enough ventilators at these hospitals. The World Health Organization is stationed in Switzerland. Why, aren't, why isn't anybody from the World Health Organization out there helping you guys? Why aren't they getting you ventilators that you mm -hmm. need? And he's like, because nobody cares. I thought that was a little bit strange. You know, that was my first question on how it was handled. But I mean, mm -hmm. here we are a year later and there's really no conclusions. I mean, we have this mRNA vaccine that we can talk about. And we also have mm -hmm. super gonorrhea that they're blaming on COVID, which I think is really ridiculous. Um, and, and we can talk about that and some of the treatments that uh, physicians and healthcare providers were giving people as they were discharged mm -hmm. from the hospital or actually going into clinic if they had a diagnosis with COVID-19. So I guess yeah. we can start. Yeah, it's been a crazy year. Um, and I don't know, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about this mRNA vaccine and how it's working. I mean, I pulled a very interesting article about it, about the woman who was first 
researching this mRNA vaccine back in the 1990s and how people were mm-hmm. telling oh, yeah. her that, oh, no, you're wrong and, and, and humiliating mm-hmm. her. And all of a sudden, here we are. Uh, it's 2021 and we're using it. This yeah, technology. But you also have to realize, but you also have to realize something about the mRNA vaccine is that its predecessor was in the late 80s, early 90s, what we would call gene therapy today. And having been involved in that in the late uh, in the early 90s, it was tough because what the goal was back then was to somehow introduce a piece of genetic material into cells that would then either produce a fully functional protein in the absence of one that wasn't being uh, made in, in the body. Uh, and in this particular case, you know, thalassemia, uh, cystic fibrosis, uh, muscular dystrophy. And the other option was to actually stop something that was going too, uh, too fast or too hard in the body. Um, So the idea back then in that early time, some 30 years ago, wasn't to offer protection, it was actually to offer a solution. Where it became really troublesome was how do you get that genetic material into the body? And the idea of a vector way, way back then was, I mean, it was kind of crazy because all we had were liposomes. And I don't know if you have seen, you know, liposomes today, they're very, very different than what they had back then. They were just basically fat globules. And so they were not effective at all. And we really didn't have that delivery system. And even into the late 90s and early 2000s, we were trying to come up with ways of developing these delivery systems. And it was very, very difficult. If it, I mean, you just simply could not get something that was going to work. And even if you did get it to go into the body, it would sometimes actually create such an, a massive inflammatory response that you could put someone's life at risk. So it's not surprising that someone would have said back then, oh, this is, you know, this is a pipe dream. There's no way. Nobody knew back then, however, that you'd be able to develop uh, adenovirus vectors. Nobody knew back then that you'd actually be able to develop cationic lipid uh, delivery nanoparticles. Nobody had any sense of the technology that we have today. So while the idea has been around for a very, very long time, the actual technology to make this possible is really only in the last 15, well, 10 to 15 years. And so we have to pay homage to the people who came up with the ideas, even though they were ridiculed back then, because that's essentially what's going to help us get past this pandemic and help to prevent us from future ones down the road. Well, it's interesting you say that because it is a very controversial vaccine because they have not tested on live human beings before. So in actuality, this is a Mm -hmm. huge experiment. I guess you can say that. I mean, there's criticisms on both sides. And um, and I was, I, I'm on a, a several Facebook forums where nurses who did get the vaccine are now having symptoms. I mean, in the beginning, mm-hmm. we saw uh, a lot of nerve palsies. 
you know, we, what did we see? We saw nerve palsies. Now people are complaining that they have uh, chronic headaches. They've been sick for a couple of weeks mm -hmm. with COVID like symptoms. Um, some, there have been some deaths in San Diego. They recalled over 300,000 vaccines because this certain lot number was creating a um, allergic reaction. So it, it, there's a lot of just high strange going on with this vaccine. Many people are being forced to take it. I, I read an article today that the LAUSD school teachers are being really pushed to get this vaccine or else schools will not open up. Mm -hmm. I didn't read all of that article. Um, sometimes how you read words uh, and there could be fiction between the lines. That's very important to see. Yeah. Uh, because that may not be correct. They can't force anybody. I mean, you can't say you either get the vaccine or you don't have a job uh, because it is not a law mm -hmm. to get the vaccine. So uh, people would have to just wear a mask as we did as nurses going in and not wanting to take the flu vaccine. Yeah. But what do you say to these exactly. complications coming out of it? I mean, um, I think they're vaccine injuries, I would say. Uh, but if you talk to the pharmaceutical companies, they're like, eh, well, you know, it's meant to happen. Some people are going to die if they take it. <laughs> well, one thing you have to realize, and I think people still have trouble understanding that when you introduce a brand new foreign entity into the body, your immune system is going to take a long while to be able to develop a, a response that's going to be effective. And about three weeks is, is what we're talking about here. But more importantly, and if anyone got the flu vaccine this particular year, you'll also notice it's going to hit you hard. And the reason for that is because it's brand new. So there isn't any kind of dampening effect in the body. And so as that happens, you expect there to be perhaps a little bit higher grade of adverse events. Now, when you go back and you look at the mRNA vaccines that are currently in lipid nanoparticles, what you do see is indeed there have been higher incidence of uh, those type three uh, or, or level three um, adverse events. The majority of those, however, have been very, very small and localized in terms of the actual numbers in relation to how many people ended up getting it, which is one of the reasons why the FDA uh, allowed for them to be approved. But by the same respect, one thing that people have to also understand, and I've had this discussion with people in the public, is that if you do have any kind of immune suppression, or if you do have any kind of uh, changes in your immune profile, or you happen to be already suffering from inflammation, or you happen to already be suffering from, you know, severe fatigue or any of these things that already put a stress on your immune system, you indeed are going to have a harder time when you are introduced to a brand new vaccine, whether it be the COVID-19 vaccine, or whether it be the flu vaccine that had brand new strains in it this particular year. And I think that's something that doesn't really get sent across to people. Well, I don't think people so you actually know that. I think what people are, people are in fight or flight. So they're like, 
I got to get the vaccine because I don't want to die. This is what they're thinking. And I want to go back to my normal life. I don't want to wear a mask when I go out. I want to be able to go out to dinner and order, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever it is when you go out to dinner. Like I had one guy tell me he was upset because he couldn't go to breakfast and order hash browns because he didn't like to make them at home because they weren't the same, you know? So this is what people are thinking. So they're not really thinking of their bodies and saying, or I don't know if anybody's really teaching them that, hey, listen, Mm -hmm. if you have any health concerns, any immune health concerns, uh, immunosuppressed yeah. issues with your body that maybe right now is not a good time for you to take the vaccine. I'm not hearing anybody really talk about that, but we haven't even heard anybody no, exactly. talk about the immune system from day one. So I, why mm-hmm. should we be surprised? So, but. And that is, and that is something that I have been talking about uh, in, in my discussions um, within the media and uh, in conferences and that type of thing is we always have to focus on the immune system. But the other thing that we need to focus on that a lot of people seem to, you know, talk about, they use the term, but they don't really understand it, is this idea of herd immunity which is just kind of a made up term. It's called the elimination threshold. And what that means is that you have enough people who have got some kind of immune protection that the virus cannot circulate widely within the community. And that is how you protect those who can't get the vaccine. And this is something that we've known for decades, but for I don't understand why it has been missed Now, all of a sudden, it just seems like everybody needs to get that vaccine. And one of the things that I've been trying to get across to people is this. You only need about two thirds to 70% of the population actually getting this vaccine. And then another five to 8% who have actually had the virus itself to be able to get to that stage. So if you are in a situation where your immune system may not be functioning as well as it should, or you are in a situation where you're taking medications that are suppressing your immune system or something along those lines, you may probably want to sort of say, okay, well, if I know that the people around me are getting it and they're having this sort of elimination threshold or ring vaccination around yourself as an individual, that may be enough to be able to prevent this virus from ever coming into contact with you. But we just seemingly have forgotten that aspect of how important it is to be able to say, look, if you qualify immunologically for a vaccine, get the vaccine so that we are actually protecting those who are in a situation where they are at higher risk. And what I'm hoping, and and at least here in Canada and also in the UK, I've been noticing that it's been very smooth. I haven't been hearing very much in terms of type three or higher adverse events. I'm hoping that we will get to a stage where we are having that widespread vaccination, uh, whether it be through massive campaigns or whether it be through the availability in pretty much every drugstore, whatever, um, that we can start getting people uh, the vaccine. But again, we're going to have to make sure that that caveat is in place, like we've done with every other vaccine up until this point. I think you bring up excellent points. But we're not seeing that here. We're not hearing that here. I, I mean, they're just saying everybody needs to get this vaccine. Um, and and oh, it's, yeah. I, I mean, here they've been having vaccine, vaccine 
campaigns at Disneyland and other places. I think I saw an article where Starbucks was giving, you get a vaccine, you get a free latte, something like that. I'm not exactly mm -hmm. sure where that was. Somebody just sent me this article. Um, but I, I think this is an excellent point about herd immunity that, that is coming up. I mean, I had COVID. I had COVID during um, Christmas and I got it because my whole clinic got it. So what I was seeing was oh, wow. my patients had really low vitamin D levels. So kids, I work in pediatrics and uh, kids are not going outside. I mean, they're staying inside because a lot of people are scared to go outside even to play, even to have mm -hmm. their children go outside to play. So they're, they're not getting enough sunlight yeah. and their vitamin D levels are super low. And I read a study where if you pair that with high fructose corn syrup, like uh, sodas and such, mm -hmm. then it, it, your immune system is really shot down. So I also read another oh, article yeah. where children can be carriers, but not necessarily uh, develop the coronavirus. So who knows if they are spreading it, I'm not mm -hmm. saying it, it was one of my patients or several patients that got it. I know that our whole clinic mm -hmm. went down and got it. We all, you know, survived. I actually did pretty well in it. It wasn't bedridden. I had a low grade fever for one night, had cough, started taking mm -hmm. albuterol right away and um, just thought it was a mild sinus infection. Now I did have body aches, yeah. pains, and I did lose sense of taste and smell. And I was just fatigued. So I think the fatigue was my worst symptom. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the headaches like everybody else was. I did um, because I'm staying in the desert. I was able to walk and there's nobody around me. Um, uh, mm -hmm. And I was able to walk two miles every day and I did okay. But I'm also hearing a lot of people who are ending up in the ICUs maybe had COVID and are ending up with blood clots. They're ending up with pulmonary embolisms mm -hmm. in the lungs. They're ending up with strokes, you know. So can you kind of talk yeah. to some of those areas and what's going on and why? Okay. So the first thing about vitamin D that everyone needs to understand is that it's not going to protect you from COVID. What it will do is it will help to reduce the chances that you're going to have a severe infection from the virus. Because it boosts your immune system. And well, actually, it doesn't boost your immune system. Believe it or not, it actually tempers your immune oh, system. Okay. But more importantly, vitamin D has a really, really cool mechanism. And it actually gets involved to some extent in what is known as the renin angiotensin system or the RAS. And what it helps to do is reduce the levels of something called angiotensin II. Now, from an immunology perspective, that's the inflammatory protein that just makes your whole body go into cytokine storm. Yes. And that is and what is causing all the problems, is, right? Exactly. So <laughs> you get this particular virus inside of you. It starts to go systemic. It starts to reduce your ACE2 levels. And as a result of that, your angiotensin II levels are going to go up because ACE2 gets rid of angiotensin II. Just Google RAS. It's just the easiest <laughs> thing to do. Um, and then when that happens, then you are in a highly inflammatory condition. Now, in children, multiple inflammatory syndrome. Uh, in adults, disseminated clotting. And also the potential for uh, failure in various different organs, such as the kidney. So the whole idea is that 
if you have these higher levels of this angiotensin II, then you are at much higher risk of all of these secondary sequelae that could potentially be life-threatening. So even if you don't care about COVID, you get enough vitamin D in you to be able to help to suppress those angiotensin II levels to be able to take more of the burden off of the ACE2. And then if you do happen to get the infection, then you're less likely to be able to develop those severe symptoms. That being said, if you're already getting those severe symptoms, do not take vitamin D. It's not going to help you. Go to a hospital. That's the best thing you can do. So in that light, the whole idea of getting sunlight, of getting good air, of getting that vitamin D inside of you is excellent to help being able to promote your health. Once we sort of move past that, though, into all of these other secondary sequelae, you just want to avoid them altogether. And that's one of the reasons why you want to avoid the virus in the first place. Now, one thing that we've been hearing is that these new variants that are coming out have a greater fitness for the, uh, for the human body, which means they're going to get inside of you better, they're going to multiply inside of you better, and they're probably going to have a higher viral load, so they'll transmit better to another person. What we've only begun to realize, though, is that there is a very, very simple factor in anything when it comes to a viral infection. And that is more virus, more bad. And so if, it, if the virus is inside of you and it's growing faster and it's growing to higher levels, then there's going to be an increased chance of you having severe symptoms and an increased chance of you having a problem that could potentially lead to death. And that's where those that data that we're hearing about from the UK more recently has been really focusing on. It's not that this thing is more deadly it's the fact that it produces more virus. And as a result of that, you're at a greater risk. So that's even more reason to be able to, more reason to prevent this particular virus from actually getting inside of you in the first place. I think that's, those are excellent points to bring up. Uh, and it, and they're saying it's a different strain. So you're not saying it's a different strain. It's just becoming more potent. Like it's just- yeah more virus in your system. That's what's going on. Yeah, we, we get caught up in this uh, language of strain, lineage, clade, uh, isotype, whatever you want to call it. What is more important is what is actually happening at the protein level. And there are three or four very, very important protein changes that are occurring um, whenever you have a variant. And as a result of that, we can actually identify based on which individual variation occurs, what is the higher risk for either infection, transmissibility, whatever. Now, in the United States, we've been hearing about one that's very similar to the UK and also similar to the uh, South African. There's one coming out of Brazil that has a different one that makes it a little bit more challenging. And so what's ending up happening is we're hearing about the countries of origin. We're just not hearing about the protein uh, interactions. And as a result of that, people are just starting to get very worried because we're not associating the chances with each of these variants with your actual risk. And it's just become a very large, oh my God, it's a variant. You're all going to get sick and possibly have a higher chance of death. It's not really the way it works, but at the end of the day, you know, the literacy level you need to have to be able to understand what an N501Y means or an E484K means 
is is incredibly complex and and requires a lot more time and effort than just to say you know what the variants are transmitting faster and better which means that it makes even more sense to be vigilant in being able to prevent it using your barrier protection like masks and your uh, hand washing and of course your social distancing That's awesome. I, I want to also talk a little bit about how people have been treating COVID and, and this will go into the super <laughs> yeah. gonorrhea part. Yeah. Uh, I have been hearing, um, I did not go in for treatment. I just treated it myself. Uh, and um, I was just taking high dose vitamin C. I, and this is just for me. I'm not recommending this for anyone. I did take uh, lots of vitamin D. I did take zinc. Um, I did take some CBD oil, um, lots of fluids and just plenty of rest, um, in, in Netflix, of course, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but, but what people are coming out of the hospital with are azithromycin, zinc, Mm -hmm. and, uh, steroids as well. Uh, and, and so this is what I'm hearing. And there was a flurry of crazy discussion amongst many nurse practitioners on Facebook and also my friends that were calling me up and like, oh my gosh, can you imagine that they're giving everybody azithromycin? And at first uh, it was because people were developing a pneumonia, a secondary pneumonia, mm-hmm. uh, which was bacterial in nature. So that's why they were giving the AZT. And, and then nurse practitioners were saying, okay, so these People who did get COVID, who went in and got these meds are now calling the offices to get the AZT or not AZT, azithromycin for yeah, AZM. their <laughs> I know you say AZT. Totally wrong med, totally wrong med. I have no, dyslexia. No, no. So yeah, That's azithromycin, okay. Okay. not AZT. So Zithromax. We're, we're going to get Zithromax for, they, they were asking for Zithromax for their children now. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and everybody's like, what do you think of this? And it's like, we do not want to give out antibiotics when you don't need to. I mean, that's a huge, big thing, uh, because everybody's getting much more sensitive. These bugs are getting much more stronger, which leads Mm -hmm. us into super gonorrhea. Mm -hmm. I know (laughs) they're blaming COVID on that, which is, I I think ridiculous, totally ridiculous. We can get into that in a sec. I do want to say, however, that the whole idea of giving azithromax, which of course is the zinc and the azithromycin, um, is one of those things where people walk in and at least a third of the population, as the minute that they walk into a doctor's office, they want to walk out with a script. Oh, yes. Because so the, then they get the upset. The matter, right. I- yeah. I mean, I still remember this study. Now, this was in the UK and a number of years ago, but doctors literally were being given lower marks of satisfaction from patients who essentially were put on either uh, antibiotic uh, um, staggering or stewardship or just simply, no, you're not getting an antibiotic. So they were like literally trying to find something that they could just hand over as a script to at least maintain that satisfaction level. So it doesn't surprise me that people would be wanting, but would be coming out there. Uh, mind you, one of the last sort of 
defense mechanisms that we have when it comes to antibiotics versus any kind of bacterial infection has <laughs> happens to be azithromycin. So I would not necessarily recommend that this would be the path you approach. Unfortunately, it did get picked up by a number of different groups. Um, and regardless of the fact that there was no clinical evidence to suggest so, they started saying, well, we need to have the Zithromax and some other, and, and, and back then they were looking at including uh, hydroxychloroquine HCQ. And now we're looking at the idea of um, attaching something like a DEX, dexamethasone, or some other type of steroid. Hopefully to goodness, they're not sending people home with DEX, but you never know. Yeah, they they did get some people I know did get sent home with uh, dexamethasone <laughs> and some Why? type of steroid, but uh, yeah, and rem rem I can't say the name of it R E M D E S severe rem You can say it better than me. Remdesivir. Remdesivir. There you go. Yeah. So I don't know if anybody, I don't know, I haven't heard of anybody actually getting that who's had COVID, um, mm -hmm. but maybe some places are giving it out as a treatment. Yes. Uh, if um, So are you familiar with the West Wing? Uh, the, the show? Uh, the the show somewhat. Yeah. Okay. So Toby, Richard Schiff, he's now in The Good Doctor and he does an amazing job with his wife, uh, Sheila Kelly. Um they got COVID here in Canada and they actually had to fight to get remdesivir. Oh, wow. Um, but they did get it and it did seem to help them. So there is some, uh, th there is some value behind remdesivir, but I believe it has to be, it's a timely. So if you've already gone into a point where you have to prone the patient, I don't think the rem, uh, the, the, it's going to work as effectively. But if you're getting it sort of as it's worsening, probably within that five to 10, uh, day five to 10, then maybe it might actually have some effect. I think it works well if you give it early on, like uh, some yeah. studies have shown that hydroxychloroquine did. So, I mean, you're mm -hmm. not a fan of the hydroxychloroquine. No. And, and the reason I'm not a fan is because first off, uh, what, it's do what it's doing is actually intracellularly changing the way that your cells act. And the minute that you start to do that, you start to be concerned about the fact that this may have a secondary effect on something else in your body. So you might be taking HCQ to be able to work on your, um, you know, the change the lysosomal pH of the uh, cells on the layer of your nasopharyngeal region. But as we've seen, it can also uh, have a change on the uh, electrical pulses that occur in your heart. And it might actually prolongate or elongate or prolongation of the QT interval. And when that happens, it literally leads you to various different types of, tar uh, of uh, tachycardia. And so as a result of that, um, you want to be absolutely sure that you do not have any risk factors from a cardiac perspective before you even consider HCQ. The problem is that as we were talking about with vaccines, it just seems like everybody just wanted to go out there and get it because they felt that it was gonna protect them against this particular infection. And the results have come back that in a long-term longitudinal study, no, it really does not. Huh, very interesting. 
So the super gonorrhea, I think it's interesting how it's <laughs> really coming out right now because I, I was reading an article mm. from the UK. So in 2018, some guy went to Southeast Asia, had a little bit of fun, slept around, and then came back and started spreading this super gonorrhea, which is also mm. treated with azithromycin. So it was... I guess it's gonorrhea and it's very resistant to any treatment. So for some reason, it yeah. started popping up again in the UK during COVID, like during mid-December, late December. That's when I was reading these articles and when they had come out. Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell us a little bit about what super gonorrhea is? I think it's because nobody is using condoms. Like maybe it's these yeah. people <laughs> who... Uh, have been in quarantine a little bit too long, or maybe have been married a long time, aren't used to using condoms, and now are like, eh, I'm just gonna go and mess around because I don't know. It's it's the yeah. apocalypse, and it's just a thing to do. So tell us a little bit about super gonorrhea. Sure. Um, by the way, before I get into that, I just want to say one thing about the UK is that they have had several of these incidences where they've seen someone who's gone traveling. Now, this one, uh, the individual was in the Far East, but there was another one that really made headlines. And that person was from uh, who actually got it while they were in Ibiza. So, in where? Uh, Ibiza? you know, that, that song took a drug in Ibiza. Oh, hmm? in Ibiza. Yeah. 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 Um, so there's this song called uh, um, Took a Drug in Ibiza. And uh, the fact of the matter is, is that you can now change it to uh, Got a Bug in Ibiza. But anyway, dad jokes aside, super gonorrhea is a very important uh, concept in what we call multi-drug resistant or extremely drug resistant bacteria. Um, it first started showing up around 2009, where all of a sudden the front lines of defense when it comes to antibiotics, and these are, you know, ceftriaxin, uh, tetracycline, cipro, uh, ciprofloxacin, azithromycin, penicillin to some extent, um, they all of a sudden uh, were showing lack of function against this particular strain. Back then it was called the H041. Um, and so that sort of raised an alarm that maybe, just maybe, we might end up with a particular type of uh, gonorrhea strain that would be resistant to all. So we've got multi-drug resistant, cross-drug resistant. The risk was for what we call pan-drug resistant. Uh, and, and that just simply meant that a person would not be able to be treated for it. Now, that really didn't happen in 2011, but it did happen in 2017. And there were actually three different uh, versions or strains of this particular type of gonorrhea that came out from China. And it showed much greater resistance to all of the big ones. But more importantly, it actually showed a massive amount of resistance to azithromycin as well as ceftriaxone. And those, back in 2014, were considered to be the treatments uh, that we're going to be able to save you from this particular uh, problem, this, this particular infection. Now, unfortunately, because of the massive amount of azithromycin that was being used, what ended up happening was that the CDC actually took azithromycin off of its recommended regimen for uncomplicated gonorrhea. And as a result of that, 
what ended up happening with ceftriaxone was the only one that was left. And now we go to 2018 where this guy comes back and all of a sudden the ceftriaxone is not working. And people are saying, oh dear goodness, because that really only leaves us with one particular option that's left and that's the spectinomycin. Now let's fast forward back to 2020 and let's look back a little bit at what we were just talking about with people going home with Zithromax. And all of a sudden, people are scratching their heads going, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, the reason that we're seeing a large amount of gonorrhea that is potentially pan-resistant happens to be the fact that we've been sending people home with Zithromax and they've been taking it and it's just led to an increase in uh, gonorrhea-resistant strains. Well, it doesn't work that way. In order for the gonorrhea <laughs> to actually be resistant, you have to have the gonorrhea. And if you have COVID right. and you get Zithromax, the likelihood of you getting gonorrhea is pretty low because, well, I don't know, you had COVID. It, you do not feel, shall we say, frisky when you have this particular virus, do you? No, you don't. <laughs> After having it, you just are exhausted. Exactly. I have had several friends who have had COVID-19 and I have asked them. And on the friskiness scale, it's about a minus 212. So the reality is that the reason we're seeing an increase in this sexually transmitted infection, along with a whole bunch of others like syphilis, um, chlamydia, chlamydia, uh, and um, uh, even to some extent, HIV is the fact that we are now living in a situation where people simply cannot go out. And what they are doing is they're finding ways to be able to get together and have some kind of interaction. And as a result of that, that interaction is leading to a greater chance for risky behavior and for the spread of sexually transmitted infections. And I think one other thing you have to realize, and this goes back to a bit of epidemiology, when you look at who was getting COVID way, way back in the summer and fall, when we sort of were at a point where it looked like it was going to be okay for a while, it was the 20s and to some extent the 30s. And when you look historically at the people who were spreading these particular types of sexually transmitted infections, that was the age group. Now, granted, over the last 10 years, that's gone down somewhat into the teenagers. But I think if we were to look at epidemiological data now as to who's getting these particular types of infections, I think it would be matching or very close to an association with those who were also getting the COVID-19. It's all due to uh, personal actions. Um, and, and we can do a much better job of being to isolate that just simply because of the limited amount of movement amongst people due to the pandemic. Those are excellent points. And this has been such a, a great discussion. I mean, you've cleared up a lot of stuff for me, a lot of questions, a lot of uh, mm -hmm. like, I don't know. The, there was, there's a lot of gray area with this whole pandemic coronavirus and the way in there, and it's, there's been a media war as we can say but uh, oh, yeah. which has all been very, very interesting. So, but I've loved this discussion. It's been so much fun. Tell people where they can listen to your podcast. 
So the Super Awesome Science Show you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you get your streaming audio. Uh, one thing I'd love for you to do is to subscribe, then unsubscribe and subscribe again. It's a really neat trick. Um, and uh, please give us a rating. Uh, this, what we're doing, try again. This season, what we're doing is we're answering, uh, and to some extent, dispelling the myths of COVID-19 in a way that is both interesting and to some extent, a lot of fun. Because where else are you going to hear what the actual definition of an aerosol is and why someone who jumps out of an airplane is an aerosol? <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. So fun. Yes. And, and everybody out there in nurses and hypochondriacs world, if you've learned anything about this episode today, it's wear a condom. The medium media is making you more of a hypochondriac, I think, right? Now, now thinking you have gonorrhea when you haven't even had sex. So if you haven't had sex, you don't have gonorrhea. <laughs> so I don't think you do. So thank you for listening. And again, thank you for uh, coming on, Jason. I always love having you on. We always have these very fun discussions. And uh, yeah, and you make science super awesome. Definitely. <laughs> All right. Thank cool. Until next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to our Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast. We love your support and we love our listeners. If you have some spare change, go ahead and throw some to us on our Venmo at Nurses and Hypocon. Also, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love that. And if you'd like to be a guest, go ahead and send us an email at nursesandhypochondriacs at gmail.com. Bye.